sometime in the course of the past 2,000 or so years of church history, a distinction has been made within the church between Christians and disciples. That is, a Christian is someone who simply knows the Lord. They've maybe made a profession of Jesus Christ. Or maybe they were brought up in a particular way, and when they fill out a form that asks what their religious affiliation is, that they'll check uh, that they are Christian. And, and, and technically speaking, if someone is a Christian, um, that, then that just means that they ascribe to the Christian faith. But then there's the disciple on the other side of that. And for someone to call themselves by the name of a disciple, in our era, that means something totally different than it is just to be a Christian. If someone is a disciple, well, then that means that they're a little bit more radical about their faith, about the things that they believe. It means that they probably attend church on a very regular basis. They're probably students of the Bible. They probably read the Bible on a regular basis and have some form of a prayer life, uh, albeit weak or strong. They are people that would call themselves most likely born again, And, you know, really, it's a totally different view or outlook than someone who simply calls themselves just a Christian. Now, the Bible knows no such distinction. And in the Bible, the two terms are absolutely synonymous. From God's perspective, he sees, by definition, that there is absolutely no difference at all between a Christian and a disciple. In fact, The word Christian wasn't even coined or termed until a little bit later on. We see it in the book of Acts. And it tells us that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And the word Christian was a derogatory term that was used as a form of persecution to make them feel uh, inferior. It meant little Christ. And it was just a term of mockery. And the term took because they liked being mocked for the name of Christ. But somehow, over time, that changed and it became a distinction where there are Christians and then there are disciples. So, what are we? In God's economy, the Bible says that he sees us and he sees those that are born again. Those that have been bought by the blood and that are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that when the Holy Spirit of God comes into a life, the Bible says that he, God, is an all-consuming fire. And that he will begin a pursuit of uncovering and conquering every part of our hearts so that we belong completely to him. And by God's definition, whether you call yourself a Christian or a disciple of Christ, that is God's will and God's pursuit for each one of our lives. Now, in light of that, as we are in chapter 9 of the book of Luke, what we have here in this chapter is something a little bit different than what we've seen in previous chapters of Luke leading up to this time. Up until chapter 9, what we've really seen is the expansion of the ministry and the message of Jesus Christ. He's been preaching, declaring, and showing the kingdom of God throughout the verses that we've studied up to this point. But in chapter 9, what we're seeing here is something different. Here, the topic or the focus really is zeroing in on the spiritual development of his disciples those whom are following him, 
and those to whom he will pass the baton of leadership to when he departs to go then to the cross. Now understand that God is always doing both things in the world at the same time. He's expanding and furthering the message of the kingdom, but he is also developing us as individuals into greater committed followers of himself. He's doing both of those two things. But in chapter 9, the things that he does are aimed at the development of his disciples. Now, where we left off, Jesus had just informed his disciples for the very first time that he will be going to a cross in Jerusalem and that he's going to lay down his life for the sins of the world. And the Bible says that they didn't understand the saying that he was giving to them. They didn't understand what he was talking about. That was completely foreign news to them. It was far from their concept. And they were shocked by it. But then he shocked them even further by following that statement, by giving to them the terms of what it would cost them to follow him. He said that if any man will come after me or follow me, that he must take up his cross daily and follow me. He must deny himself and lay down his life for the cause. And if he seeks to save his life, he'll lose it. But if he loses his life for my sake and for the gospels, he'll save it. And if anyone is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and of his angels and sets up his kingdom. And he laid down the terms for what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That not only would he go to the cross, but that we must lay down the self-life and that we must follow him as well. Well, from there in making that statement, it now moves into this topic or point of scripture that we call the transfiguration. And so it's in verse 27 and it says this, Jesus speaking. He said, but I tell you of a truth that there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, that's a verse that's brought much confusion to disciples throughout the ages of them that have read this verse. Because for some, they've looked at it and they've said, well, does this mean that Jesus will set up his eternal kingdom and that the culmination of all things will take place within the lifetime of some of those that were standing there? No, not at all. Most likely, he's referring to the event that's about to take place in their life. And the reason we infer that is because both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, this statement is coupled with what takes place next, where they see, in a sense, the king of the kingdom transfigured into his glory before them. And so it says in verse 28 that it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter and John and James and he went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. Matthew tells us that his countenance or his face shined like the noonday sun, that it was incomprehensible and that the disciples couldn't look into it because of the glory of it. And it describes his clothing as so white that it was whiter than any washer could ever have, have gotten them. There was no bleach that could bring forth that type of whiteness. There was glory that was emanating from Jesus Christ. And what happens at this moment in time for these three observing disciples that are there with Jesus on this mountain is that everything that existed on the inside of Jesus was manifested on the outside. That the veil of his human flesh was torn away 
so that what was seen was the glory that existed from within. And I imagine that that must have been a spectacular moment for them as they observed and they saw what Jesus actually was, the glory of the Christ that he had proclaimed to be just a few days earlier in their midst. I can't help but wonder and think as I read this and observe it in my mind's eye, what would happen to me and maybe to each one of us if all of a sudden sitting right here, everything that was on the inside of us was immediately manifested and everyone could see it. It would probably be a totally different picture than what it was when the inside of Jesus was manifested in front of everyone. Wherein for him it was glory, for us it would probably be shame as we recognize and know ourselves so greatly. Well, it says that behold, in verse 30, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, put yourself for a moment in the shoes of those three disciples that are there, Peter, John, and James, that are observing this. And all of a sudden, they just appear, Moses and Elijah. And so glorious and spiritual is this moment that they don't even need introductions. It's just known by them. They're aware of who's standing in front of them, that it's Moses and Elijah, whom they'd never met. But now at this moment, they're encountered with them. In the Bible, Moses always represents the law, and Elijah always represents the prophets, the body of the prophets. And isn't it interesting that here you have the law and the prophets talking with Jesus about the decease that he's about to go through in Jerusalem when he comes down from the mountain and departs towards Jerusalem in just a little bit of time from now. Sometimes people think that there's a contradiction between what we read in the law and who we observe in the person of Christ. Or that what we read about in the prophets contradicts in some way the gospel of the New Testament that's revealed to us. What we see here is that there's absolute harmony between the three. Jesus would say later that the law and the prophets, everything from Moses, Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament scriptures, that all of it spoke of him. And here we see the three parties, the law, the prophets, and the Christ himself conferring together in harmony about the decease, the cross, which would be the epicenter of God's entire plan upon the earth. Well, it says in verse 32 that Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass that as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, and this was a constant problem with Peter, is opening his mouth when he should just keep it shut. I don't know if anybody else has that problem. I tend to, but I'm getting better. He said, Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, or three tents, or three structures one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. He's so taken up in the moment and so overwhelmed by the glory of it that he just speaks this, not even thinking about what he's saying. Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's keep this moment. Let's freeze this moment in time and we'll just stay here on top of this mountain forever. But while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, Peter is probably one of the only people in all of history that was rebuked by God the Father himself. And he has that boast. He could say that when we get to heaven. (laughs) I was rebuked by God. I was told to shut up and just listen to what Jesus has to say. It says, and when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone 
And they kept it close, and they told no man in those days of any of those things that they had seen. And so we see this scene in front of us of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, him appearing for a moment in his glory in the eyes of three disciples that were there then. And then the moment passed, the vision was over, and it says that they kept it close. There are moments that we have where God reveals himself to each one of us as we walk with him in ways that we could never expect or comprehend. About a year and a half ago, maybe it was a little closer to just a year ago, we went out west with the whole family. While we were out there, we saw many of the national parks and some of the things that you see on postcards and on Discovery Channel and whatnot. And there was one particular day that Georgia and I were walking through the Arches National Park in Moab, Utah. And as we walked through, um, they like you to kind of stay on the path. Um, they don't like you wandering off. But we came onto a point that was kind of the end of a trail. And there was this really soft, fluffy desert sand that had kind of like rippled up in waves, kind of like you see, uh, you know, in pictures and whatnot. And it was through an arch. And then there was like a little trail that went down. And so being the uh, rebellious, disobedient tourist that I am, I, I decided, you know, what, it's a good time for a quiet moment. And I snuck down this little path and I came to the end of it. It was about 40 or 50 feet from uh, the end of the trail that was back a little ways where they were snapping photographs and whatnot. And as I came into the clearing, there was just a little bit of a valley uh, between where we were and then there was a rock uh, wall shelf on the other side. And there was nothing, you know, super beautiful about it or anything, but it was just a moment where where God showed up. And it, it was so, it was one of the most intense moments that I've ever had as a Christian. And there was no light, there was no manifestation, there was no uh, visual thing that happened there, but it was so evidently apparent that God just met me right at that spot. And it was such a moment, I couldn't move. And I was arrested before his presence and I was overwhelmed with his goodness and with his love and who he was and, and, and that he was there, that he was so real. And I couldn't, I couldn't move, but Georgia, who was back there looking, I just gave her one of these, and I just went like this. And she made her way down the path, and she stood next to me. I didn't say a word to her, and, and the same thing w- was with her. And both of us just sat there. I don't know how long it was. And his presence was just so incredibly real, and he met us there in such a supernatural for no reason. There was no words. There was no unction. There was nothing that came out of it. There was no, like, prophetic. It was just the Lord for that moment. And then it passed. And we walked back, and both of us, we looked at each other, and we both knew exactly what just happened. And to, to, to this day, it's one of those times that the Lord just meets with us. And there are times, perhaps, that you can look in your own life, and you can say, yes, as you say that, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because from time to time, there are things that God does in our lives where he just makes himself known. And it's indescribable. It's inexplicable. There's no terms or words that you can put on it, but he just does it. Sometimes it's not a moment that he does within our life, but sometimes he brings us into seasons in our life. And it just seems like we're in a season where we've gone through so much and we've had so much turmoil and we've seen God overcome so many things and barriers within our lives and he's brought us through so much. And we come to a place where we kind of stand in the middle of our own life and we look around at everything that we have, our family and you know just how, what God has done and just the degree of stability maybe that he's given to us. And we say, Lord, how did I get into this place? And sometimes we can come to a place like that and we, like Peter, can say, God, it's good for us to be here. Can we just freeze this moment in time right now, just like it is? And can things just stay like this forever? 
It's just so good, and, and you've been so good, Lord, and you are so good. Can it just stay? But inevitably, what happens? Because it ain't heaven till we get to heaven. Things happen and things change. And we watch those circumstances that we're so content and fold into another set of circumstances. And sometimes it can be for us, like it was for them, a coming down from the mountaintop. And we can say, Lord, do we really have to descend back into that valley? Because I just want to stay here. I want to stay in this place. I like this season of my life. Can I just stay like this forever? What if God had answered Peter's prayer? What if Jesus said, you know what, Peter, if this is it for you and you want to go in, and this is the moment that you want to freeze in time, and God said yes to Peter that day, what would that mean for Peter? It would mean that he would never come face to face with the depths of corruption in his own heart when he would deny the Lord. And then he would never be restored by Jesus on the other side of it and learn the love of God in a way that he never had before. It would mean that Peter wouldn't preach on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 souls would be added to the church because the words that came out of his mouth anointed by the Spirit of God. He wouldn't have seen God do the work that he did in birthing the church upon the earth in, in pleading before the leaders and rulers of the Jews when they would look at Peter himself and they would perceive that they were ignorant and unlearned men but understand that they had boldness because they had been with Jesus. Peter never would have gone to the house of Cornelius where he would share the gospel for the first time with a Gentile man who would then be the one who would open the door for you and I to be saved right now. And he never would have been brought to that place in his life where there was such a stability and a rest that he could lay asleep in a cell the night before he would have to lay down his life for Jesus Christ and it wouldn't bother him one bit. And here's the application of this message for you and I right now is that no matter what season we're in or what season we're folding into, no matter if it's coming down off of the mountaintop or going up into it or even descending into a deeper valley than we're right now, understand this, is that God's purpose for your life is sure and known. And that what he's doing in allowing you to go through, he's doing it because he has greater glory for you on the other side of it. And he's got a plan. And he's going to bring that plan to pass. And so the lesson for Peter and for them is that there is always more, even on the other side of the things that we think it could never get better than this. Well, Jesus and the boys, they came down from there. And it tells us then in verse 37, hey, whenever you come off the mountaintop, you know you're going into the valley. It says that it came to pass that on the next day when they were come down from the hill, that much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And lo, a spirit, a demon, takes him and suddenly cries out, and it tears him, that he foams again, and bruising him, hardly departs from, departs from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, but they could not. And so Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he's met with this man, and his only son is in a condition that would break the heart of any parent to see their child in that condition. And he sought help from the disciples of Jesus Christ, but they were to no avail, and now he comes face to face with Jesus himself and pleads for compassion. And it says that Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, a comment no doubt aimed at the disciples who were unable to cast out the Spirit. How long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring your son hither. 
And as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And so Jesus now able to do in this young child's life that which his disciples were not able to do. He's able to cast out the demon. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. Now, they were all amazed and for different reasons. The multitude that were there observing what Jesus had just did, they wondered and were amazed because of what Jesus did. They saw the power of God in casting out the demon and it was a wonderment to them. But for the disciples, they were amazed and they wondered as well. And their wonder was totally different. They had seen Jesus do things like this before and it was completely within the realm of their understanding that he could. But what they were wondering is why couldn't we cast out the demon that Jesus just did? It was at the beginning of this chapter in the study that we had last week. It says that Jesus gave them power over unclean spirits and he said, cast them out. And where they went, it says that the demons were subject to them. And so why is it that in this instance, when they went to cast out the demon, they were unable to do it? It says, but while they wondered, everyone at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples. And so here comes the answer. He said, let these things sink down into your ears. For the son of man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hidden from them, that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying and what it means. Now, though Jesus called them faithless up a few verses ago when he made that comment, he said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? That isn't the only reason why these disciples weren't able to cast out the demon. In both Matthew and in Mark's gospel, it tells us that when they asked Jesus why they weren't able to cast out the demon, Jesus said, this kind cometh out only by prayer and fasting. That is that there's a further spiritual authority and power that is needed in the life of someone that's going to cast out this type of spirit. And then in Luke's gospel, which is not recorded in Matthew and Mark's, Jesus adds on the phrase as he looks at them as they wondered why they weren't able to do it. And he says, let this saying sink down into your ears. And they said something that made no sense to them. He said, the son of man is delivered into the hands of men. Now, what's the message that Jesus is sending to his disciples? And what's the reason they weren't able to cast out the demon? Here's what it is is that there are powers and privileges available to disciples that though they are imparted by grace, they do not come without a cost. Now, I'm not saying that they are earned. There is absolutely nothing that we possess or will ever do that we actually earn the right or the power to do, like a merit badge that we would place upon us. Well, because of my great steadfast faithfulness to God and the fasting that I have done and the praying, that is why this power is in my life. It's never the reason. God is no man's debtor. And everything that God ever does or allows us to do in his name is done completely by grace. And that will never change. That's always the case. But understand this. Because of the effect and the attention that are associated with certain things that God will allow us to do or empower us to do, there are absolutely certain character traits that must be in place within our life if God is going to use us to do certain things within this world. There must be a deep 
humility within us if God is going to use us to greater degrees. Humility is just a real and honest sense of self. We have to know what we are. We have to know what it would look like if what's inside of us was automatically shown on the outside. That's something that we have to know. There must be self-knowledge. Because otherwise we'll be tempted to take the glory when God uses us. There must be an absolute nearness to God in our lives and a dependence upon him that we don't ever for one minute think that the power is from us or that it comes apart from him. There must absolutely be a fear of God within us that we would dare not touch his glory or in any way misrepresent his character in anything that we do within our lives. And there must be a wisdom of understanding and knowing his ways and the whys behind his ways. Those things are essential in our lives if God is going to move us into levels where we do greater things than we do presently. And there are always greater things that we can do than what we are doing presently. But the character traits that God builds into our lives in order to equip us to do those things come at a cost. And sometimes it's painful to go through the things that we go through. And that is why Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, let these sayings sink down into your ears. The Son of Man is going to betray, be betrayed into the hands of men. Understand that the power that you are seeing manifested within my life comes at a cost. And that cost is a cross. And if you're willing to pay the cost, you'll see the power. Do you remember when James and John came to Jesus? It'll be a little bit later and they'll say to him, Jesus, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left when we come into your kingdom. And Jesus' reply to them was this. He said, can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And their response was, yes, Lord. You know, soldiers in the Lord's army marching at the, at the cross, you know, and all the rest. They had no idea what it was that Jesus was saying. In 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, when the Apostle Paul is talking about all of the things that God had used him to do and all of the revelations that God had given to him, he lists there, and he even does it somewhat shamefully, all of the things that he suffered in the thorn that was in his flesh to keep him humble in the light of the things that God had used him to do. And understand that if you want God to use your life, and he wants to use your life, there is a cost associated with it. And listen carefully. Any time that you see someone being used of God in an extraordinary way, understand that that person has paid a very high price in secret to be occupying that position or to be doing those things. And so the message that Jesus gives through this uh, passage is that there are privileges and powers that are available to the disciple that though they are given by grace, they do not come without a cost. Well, as they move from this, we now get six small snapshots that illustrate six absolute essentials of kingdom uh, culture as it concerns our Christian walk. And so it says in verse 46 that there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be the greatest. Now, you know this is going to end bad. <laughs> and Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him or in the midst or right next to Jesus where he was. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receives me, and whosoever shall receive me receives him that sent me. And here's the bottom line, For he that is the least among you all, the same shall be great. And so here now we see this first of these six snapshots, and it concerns greatness with God. How does God define greatness as it concerns our life? 
And so the disciples are having an argument who's going to be the greatest. Jesus, perceiving it, not even hearing it, takes a child and then he lectures them about receiving or ministering to a child and says that he that is least, the same will be the greatest in the kingdom. The word receive that Jesus uses when he says, whoso will receive a child, it means to embrace for the purpose of serving them. Understand that in this passage, Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for having a desire to be great. He doesn't do that any time in the Bible. In fact, God wants us to be great, and he wants us to aspire to greatness. He holds greatness out in front of us on many occasions, and he calls us to it. He talks about crowns, and he motivates us with eternal rewards. And there is a greatness that can be obtained by God. So Jesus doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. But what he does do is he reproves their concept of greatness and he reproves their concept of how greatness is achieved in the eyes of heaven and in the eyes of God. And he corrects it by saying to them that it isn't like you think. It isn't the one who receives the most applause or does the most miracles. It's the one who's the most invisible and serves the least and gains the least in terms of immediate rewards. And he uses a child as an example. And if you think about it, to minister to a child, I mean, that costs a lot because it takes a lot of energy and there's a very small ROI, or return on investment. I mean, you minister to a child and they never come up to you afterwards and say, oh, that got me. That was deep. You know, that my heart, it's like you were just plowing furrows into it and God's spirit was just blam, blam, and that, that changed my life forever. Thank you for this Sunday school class today. You know, that never happens. And we minister to kids and we pour out our heart to them and they say, do we get a cookie now? You know, we sat through the Bible study and, and that's really the mentality of a child. We go, well, I'm not even getting through to these kids. And not only do they very li- show very little in terms of, 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 uh, res- terms of receiving, but there's very little reciprocation. They never come back and say, well, thank you. I just want to give, you know, thank you for that or give you something for what you did. It's an invisible and it's a selfless service to serve a child. And so I, it's funny. If Christians believed this, then there would never be a waiting list. There would be a waiting list. There would never be blanks on a list to serve children because Jesus puts this out before us. And if we, as Christians, made this our concept and our aim to be great within the kingdom of God, then three things would be true in our lives. Number one is that that we would never lack for someone to serve because there is always a least and a last. In fact, that's the most abundant of people within this world, those that can give us nothing in return for what we would do for them. We would never cease for someone to serve. Second of all, we would be the most like Jesus because that's always who he is looking for in whom it is that he wants to serve, the person that can give and has nothing to give in return for what they do. And third, if we were this way, we would be on our way to being great in the eyes of heaven and in the eyes of God. And so Jesus redefines their position concerning greatness and he teaches us what it is to be great with God. The second snapshot concerns uh, the way that we as disciples view other disciples or other Christians. Notice in verse 49, it says that John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Now this verse makes me laugh every time I read it, because I read this text 50 times this week. 
And the verse opens by saying that John answered. But every time you read it, no matter how you look at it, Jesus never asked. No one ever asked John a question about this, and yet John took the liberty to answer it anyways. And it tells us that he answered by saying, Lord, we found someone, and they were casting out demons in your name. In your name. But they're not from our company. And so we forbade him and made them stop. It wasn't because they were casting out demons in another name. It wasn't because in any way they were misrepresenting Jesus in the way that they were doing it. It wasn't that they were preaching and mixing false doctrine in that they were casting out demons in his name. The reason why they forbade him is because those disciples weren't a part of their company. The sign out in front of their building or the heading on their newsletter had a different logo or a different branding than what we have on ours. And we really have Jesus. They might think they have Jesus, but we have the real Jesus here in our midst. And that was uh, the, the mentality behind it. But it's amazing, isn't it, that Jesus rebuked John for doing that. And he said, forbid him not. Because he that is not for us or against us is for us. In John chapter 17, which is the the prayer that Jesus prayed just before he went to heaven. It's a whole chapter long. It's a great thing to read and be familiar with. Five times in that prayer, Jesus prayed that his people would be one. Five times in one prayer, as he poured out his heart before God, his desire is that his people, those that are blood-bought, born-again Christians, that ascribed to his name as being the savior of their life, that those people would be one. That there would be no distinction, there would be no denomination, there would be no barriers between them. We see the amazing and incredible things that God can do when he looks upon his church and he sees that they are one. In Nehemiah chapter 8, after the people had come back from captivity, in chapter 8 verse 1, it says that the people all gathered together as one man, Before the water gate in Jerusalem, and as the word of God was read, there was a great revival that poured out upon them in those days. The people wept and repented of their sins, and the glory of God again descended upon his people when they were one. When we read in Acts chapter 2 what took place on the day of Pentecost, it says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, it says that the whole multitude of the disciples were gathered together with one accord. That there was a unity, there was a oneness, and it says in that setting, there was the sound as of a mighty rushing wind, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and they began to speak with tongues, and 3,000 souls were added to the church on a day when God looked down and he saw that the whole multitude of the disciples were one, that there was unity. In Psalm chapter 133, a psalm of David, just three verses long, David writes and he says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard. The ointment always speaks of the Holy Ghost. Even Aaron's beard, the high priest, that went down to the skirts of his garments. If you can see it in typology, if you can see the high priest, Jesus, in this, and if you can see the oil dripping from the head of the high priest onto the body, we are the body of Christ. You see the picture It says, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, and listen to this, for there, in the place where brethren dwell together in unity, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Understand, Christian, this, is that when God looks at his church within the world, he does not see denominational boundaries. 
He does not judge us according to where we go to church or how we worship or the type of songs that we prefer or the style of our Bible studies or the order of our services. He looks into the heart of his people and he either sees that Jesus is there and his blood has purchased that soul or they have not. And that's what God sees within it. And he is longing that his church would come together as one, that he might pour out his spirit upon his church and that there would be a reviving work of God even in the days that we live in. There are three ways, there are probably a multitude of ways, but there are at least three ways that you can absolutely quench a revival or you can resist and keep a revival from ever happening. Number one is competition among churches. When churches look at other churches and they compare themselves among themselves and cast shadows upon others, even in their own hearts and minds because of the way that they worship or what they do. A second way that you can quench or resist a revival is by criticism of other churches or other church practices, by talking about what they do in those places. And a third way is when pastors or when churches compete with other churches and they compare uh, themselves in that way. Well, how many are going to your church? How many, are, how many come to, see here, to your service? How many people have you led to the Lord? How many baptisms have you had? When God the Holy Spirit hears those words or sees that heart, it grieves him. And he moves away from blessing that church or those Christians or that area or that generation the way that he would want to. In Corinth, that was a problem. They were all divided over whom they preferred and they were all competing with each other. And Paul looked at them and he shook them through a letter. And he got real close to their face and he said, what do you have that you did not receive? And if God is doing something in your midst, then he's doing something in your midst by grace. And why do you boast as though you're special and that you didn't receive it by grace? And if God's church in these days would come to terms with the fact that God does not see those boundaries, we could see a great move of God in our midst. If we could lay down our denominational lines and say, Jesus Christ loves his church. There's a day coming, I believe in the not too distant future, when things are so dark in this world that there will be no distinction. It will be, are you saved or not saved? But what would God do if he could see that today before those days come? Jesus said, forbid him not. The third snapshot uh, that we see in verse 51 concerns the way the Christians see unbelievers. It says that it came to pass that when the time was come, that he should be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now this parenthetically marks the end of what we would call the popular years of Jesus' ministry. He's about to leave the Galilee region for the last time, and from here he will slowly work his way south through the country, landing ultimately in Jerusalem for the final week of his life when he'll lay it down uh, and be hung there upon the cross. But it's here that he steadfastly, his heart was turned from heaven's will, from where he was and what he was doing, to now begin to move in that direction. And so it says in verse 52 that he sent messengers before his face, and they went and they entered into a village of the Samaritans in order to make ready for him. Okay, so he goes into this region of Samaria. We've learned at this point by now the Samaritans or the region of Samaria was a plot of land that existed in between the Galilee region in the north in the Jerusalem region in the south. And there was a deep racial and religious tension that existed between the Samaritans and between the Jews, both in Galilee and in uh, Jerusalem. They did not like each other. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds, illegitimate Jews, 
And the Samaritans looked at the Jews in the same exact way, and yet they both laid claim to Jacob, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there was a racial tension and there was a religious tension that existed to the point that for 600 years it festered into a deep hatred so that the Jews and the Samaritans had absolutely no dealings with each other at all. Well, it says that Jesus sends messengers into a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him to come through. And notice the response, verse 53. It says, and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. So the reason why they wouldn't receive the Savior, whom they already knew about because of an encounter with a woman at a well that led many of the Samaritans to Jesus previously, the reason that they didn't receive him had nothing to do with his message or his kingdom or their need. There probably was a great need amongst them. But the reason they didn't receive him is because they understood that he was on his way to Jerusalem. And the prejudice that existed within their own heart and mind would not allow them to receive from someone who loved who they hated. They hated the the Jews. And if Jesus was going to minister to the Jews, then that was enough for the Samaritans to say, we want nothing to do with him. And they were stumbled to the point of not being able to receive from Jesus. What they had forgotten was that years ago, Jesus had steadfastly set his face to come to them. It was in John chapter 4, and it said that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Every other Jew would go around and take the Jordan Valley up and go around Samaria. But it said that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. And the reason for it was so that he could meet with a woman. And not just any woman, but a whorish, outcast, lying Samaritan woman. And he showed that he was interested not just in a woman who was in that condition, but he was interested in all of the Samaritans. And her testimony led the village of the Samaritans to Jesus in that day. But apparently they had forgotten about the love that Jesus had showed toward them previously. And in their prejudice, they decided, well, if he loves them, then we're not interested in him. Did you know that hatred is a very powerful thing? Did you know that hatred can keep you from receiving something from God that he's desiring to do within your life? Hatred turns God away from us. This is interesting. You never realize this until you're a parent. But as a parent, I love all, all how many kids do I have? <laughs> That's messed up. I almost said three. Thank you. I have five. <laughs> but I do love them all equally. <laughs> Nevertheless, I do. And the funny thing is that there are times when they don't like each other. And that puts me in a very difficult position because I could have a child that I'm madly in love with, but because that child has a problem with one of my other children, I now have a problem with that child. So I love that child, but I have a problem with that child because they have a problem with one of my other children that I love. And so I have to take that child aside and say, do you you understand that I love them as much as I love you? And I love you. But right now I'm not happy with you because you're not happy with them and I'm happy with them. Now translate that into the body of Christ. Think about the person in the body of Christ or in the context, think of the unbeliever because God loves unbelievers. The person that you hate the most, that you actually feel hatred in your heart towards. Do you understand that when that emotion is within you, unrepented of and festering, God has a problem with you because he doesn't hate the person that you're hating. Hatred is a powerful thing. Jesus demonstrated to the Samaritans that he loved them as much as he loved the Jews. And Jesus loved the Samaritans. Well, notice what it says. 
It says in verse 54 that when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? But Jesus turned and he rebuked them and he said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went then to another village. Here's what we learn about the heart of God towards an unbeliever in this passage. Is that he is not the destroyer of life. If Jesus is not received, and this is true whether it's in a village of the Samaritans, or whether it's true in the life of an individual person, is that if Jesus is not received... What he does and how he handles that is that he goes elsewhere. And what we learn is that that life then that has rejected Jesus is completely capable of destroying itself. God doesn't need any help in it. And that's what happens when a person refuses Christ. They destroy themselves. They self-destruct. And so Jesus politely steps away. A lot of people think God is ruining my life. No, 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 no. God wants to save your life. You're ruining your life. Give your life to him and he'll put it back together. That's what he did. The other thing that we learned from this passage, and I love it, is that Jesus turned the first jihadist into the apostle of love. I mean, this is the second time we've seen John, right? The first one, he's like, Lord, we rebuked someone who was casting out demons in your name. And here, he wants to call down fire from heaven on an unbeliever. But what's amazing is that at the end of John's life, he will die known as the apostle of love. And when you read the Gospel of John, and when you read 1 John, and you see the heart that God put in John after all these things were said and done, you see that he was a completely changed and different person. And that should give every one of us hope here tonight. Because God never leaves us the same. And when we choose and begin to follow him, he begins to do a work in our life that changes us from what we are into something that at present we are not. And so uh, then we come to these last three sketches and we have three men uh, in these closing verses that remain nameless, but they wanted to become disciples, but they were refused that privilege or that status. It says in verse 57 that it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow you whithersoever you go. And Jesus said unto him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. The first man that Jesus encounters, he comes to him, or he comes to Jesus, he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus puts his finger immediately on the one area of this man's life that is unsurrendered to him. And that's the reason why Jesus refuses this man from being a disciple, because he is an unsurrendered man. He says, hey, you're so gung-ho and so zealous about wanting to follow me, but do you realize that what it might cost you to follow me is you might have to give yourself to a life wherein you never have a place that you call your home. And in context and inference, this man didn't follow Jesus. He did not give his life to Jesus in that way because he was unsurrendered and unwilling to do it. Isn't it amazing how Jesus has a way of putting his finger on the very thing in our life that we're unwilling to yield to him? I know for a fact right now that however many people are in this room, there is an equal number of wrestling matches going on right now with something in each one of our lives that God has his finger on right now and he's asking us to lay it down and surrender it. And I know that part of that wrestling match that you and I are going through right now is that there's a voice inside of us that's saying, God, what are you trying to do? Just take away everything that I love and like in life? I mean, are you just taking it all out? Why are you doing this to me in this way? 
Is that what God wants? Is that his heart that I just have nothing? I remember sharing the gospel one time with someone and said, I'm not giving my life to God because he'll take away my snowmobiles. It was the one thing that he knew that, that I'm not surrendering. He can have everything else, but he can have my wife and kids, but he can't have my snowmobiles. But he does that in every one of our lives, and he does it constantly. He puts his finger on the area of our life that is unsurrendered. And the reason why he does that is not because he's trying to take away from us the things that we enjoy, but because he's trying to set us free from those things that hold us and replace that affection with an affection for him that gives to us a love that's lasting and that allows us then to enjoy the things that he gives us in our life more fully. He doesn't take the things away necessarily all the time. He replaces the affection with a greater affection and in return we're set free and we have life. We go through this, don't we? I had an episode recently. Something happened in my life. It concerned the calendar and it concerned my wife and it concerned her being late for something. <laughs> and I was convinced that God was taking away another two years of infancy, two years of, of sanity, two years of sleep. And I closed myself in a room and I had to say to God, I had to say, God, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't want to do this again. I love my kids, but I don't want to do this again, Lord. What are you doing? And what the Lord did in that moment is that he said, do you see, Nick, that surrender or lack of surrender can come in many forms and ways? What if my will for your life and my perfect plan for you is that you have 12 kids? And that's what I want for your life. Am I not worthy that you should follow in that plan? And what am I going to say? No, Lord. It is good for us to be here. Let things stay the way they are right now. And I had to say, okay, Lord, that if that's your will, we followed the rules. This is from you. If this happened, it's supernatural. Though we know how that happens. Don't come up to me afterwards and say, do you know how that happens? Yeah. Yes, I know how that happens. But it would have been of God if it happened. And it didn't happen, so you get the, you know, the end of the story and the whole thing. But for four days, I had to go in and cry out to God, God, take the things in my heart that I'm not willing to surrender to you. And he is ever willing to do it. And on each of those four days, I was able to leave the prayer closet different than I went in. And that's always the way it is. He gives us the grace to glorify him through whatever it is that he has planned for our lives. And that's the way he works with each one of us. This man was unsurrendered, and thus he could not follow as a disciple. The second man and the second reason for denial is that this man was independent. Verse 59. It says that he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, this guy makes people mad. And here's why. Because he didn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to him. And Jesus said, you go and preach. This man had a call to preach from Jesus himself. But he denied it. And the reason that he denied it is because he wanted financial stability first. In that culture, they buried their dead on the same day that they died. So there's no instance where, okay, well, this guy died a few days ago, and now Jesus has to, you know, go, go, you know, wait while the funeral. But no, 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 no. This guy's saying, wait for me to get the inheritance. And Lord, when I no longer have to trust you for my finances, then I'll go and preach the kingdom of God. Because everyone with a pulse knows that if someone goes and preaches the kingdom of God and they're legitimate, that they're probably going to live in some level of want or poverty or not know if they're going to get paid for the rest of their lives. And they're probably not going to have a 401k. And this man was unwilling to submit to those terms. 
And so he denied the call that Jesus placed upon his life because he wanted independence. He didn't want to trust God for the things that God would provide. He wanted to have those things set and secure so that he would have them in his life. And Jesus allowed him to go. And then the reason for the third man in verse 61 was man-pleasing. It says that another said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first. And this is the second time we've had someone say me first to Jesus. And let me just give you wise counsel tonight. Don't ever say me first to Jesus. Let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my house. And Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And what this man wants to do is not just to go home and just say, see you guys later, I'm grabbing my coat and a cup. That's not the point. Jesus is not that. He's not a dictator in that sense that he doesn't allow us to do things like that. What he was doing is that he was saying, I want the approval and the blessing of those that are within my family and my house to live this kind of a life. And Jesus replied, knowing that that's what this man wanted, says, no, no, no. No one that puts his hand to the plow, that's committed and all in, and that looks back for any reason at all is fit to serve within the kingdom of God. And understand this, Christian, that if you need the approval of men, even the people in your own household, in order for you to follow God completely and to surrender absolutely, then you're not going to last in the kingdom of God. And the reason for that is because eventually you're going to come against a point where you have to make a decision that can't please both man and God. And what are you going to do in that instance if you're set on pleasing people? If you can't choose to please God, no matter where the chips fall in the realms of men, then as a disciple, you're going to fall short. You'll grow to a certain point and then you'll stop. Your growth will be stunted. It's impossible that every decision pleases both and we're called to obey God rather than men. The musicians can come as we close our study tonight. And so we see in chapter 9, we see a chapter that is largely devoted to principles concerning our own personal growth and our consecration uh, as disciples as we would uh, grow closer to the Lord. And let me just, in this last moment of, of time that we have together here, let me just read to you the 10 things I won't, I won't comment on them, but let me just read to you the 10 things, the 10 lessons that Jesus gives to disciples in these days. The first is that we are called to be ambassadors and therefore we're called to represent him in our behavior as well as in our message and our gifting and our calling. They're equally important. Number two, that if we're going to serve like Jesus, then that means that we're called to place others' needs before our own, but to understand that there will always be enough left over for us. Number three, that our whole life and message is built upon that Jesus is the Christ of God. It's the epicenter of all. Number five, whether he leads us to a mountain or to a valley, wherever he leads us, we must be willing to follow. And that we can never say to the Lord, it's good for us to stay here and not willing to follow him down. Number six, is that there are certain privileges and powers that though they are unearned, there is absolutely a price to pay. Number seven, that greatness in the kingdom of God comes from ministry to the least with no immediate reward. Number eight, that unity and love is the will of God for his church and it's the precursor for revival and any outpouring. Number nine, that Jesus came to save life, not to destroy it, And we must represent that in the way that we deal with non-believers. And then number 10, unsurrendered, independent, man-pleasing people will not bear lasting fruit 
in the kingdom of God. All of our lives must be yielded to him. And so the text gives us a lens that allows us to look into our lives, not unto condemnation that we would see where we fall short, but rather unto hope. Because in every area that we see that we fall short as disciple of, uh, of Jesus, that when we bring those areas where we fall short to him in prayer, it opens the door for him to change us in those areas and that we might experience more of him in the process. And that's his will for our lives. That's our glory and our good. Amen? Father, we thank you this evening as we look at this passage and we close it out. And we thank you, Father, for what you've given to us through the truths that are laid down here. And so, Father, may tonight our hearts be consecrated more fully to you. Lord, may there be a fire lit under every one of us. May we love you with all of our heart, mind, and strength. And may we not, Lord, be in this day those that simply call themselves Christians but fail to follow you fully. But, Lord, may we be blood-bought, born again, sold out, radical followers of you wherever you would lead and whatever you would call us to. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.